Hello, Tiger Nation. I am Byron Hulsey, headmaster at Woodbury Forest School, and I would like to welcome you to the Woodbury podcast series. This podcast consists of informal yet substantive conversations with alumni, faculty, staff, and students. The conversations explore how Woodbury's core values empowered alumni to build a solid foundation for their lives, how those core values are taught today by Woodbury teachers, and how those values are put into practice by today's students. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Well, welcome, everyone, to the Woodbury Podcast. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Abby Mills, who is the Assistant Head for Academic Affairs here at Woodbury Forest. Abby is a force for good in our world at, at Woodbury. She came as a teacher and a coach, has now assumed this new role at Woodbury, which uh, we're really excited about. So, Abby, thanks for joining us, and we look forward to a good conversation here. Thanks for having me. So give us a little bit of feed, a little bit of insight into you, where you grew up, where you went to school, kind of how you decided on where to go to college, what college was like for you. And then we can kind of turn uh, after that into your, your initial career direction as an engineer. But first, what about what was it like growing up as Abby? Yeah, well, like you, I'm from Texas, which is... A great place to be from. I lived there my whole life till moving to Woodbury. So I was born in Houston, grew up mostly in Dallas. I went to the Hockaday School in Dallas from 7th through 12th grade, which was my initial intro to single-sex education, private schooling. It's very, very similar to Woodbury in a lot of ways. Yeah. I loved my school experience there. Very influential in where I ended up at NASA, but, and also very influential in ending up here. I was always really drawn to math and science. Those were my favorite subjects. And Does that run in your family? It does not. Hmm. Um, my dad's good at it, I think. I think he was like good at chemistry, but he was always drawn towards political science hmm. and ended up in marketing. My mother was a paralegal for a while, and she now runs, she's an event planner for really big yeah. law firms. Mm -hmm. So no, I, neither of my grandparents, anybody, I was the first person to major well, in engineering awesome. in my family. I think for them, it was this weird thing that just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. And so thinking about colleges, I always really wanted to go to Rice. It was my my number one choice, and I was lucky enough to get to spend four years there majoring in mechanical engineering. What was Rice like? It was very much an extension of what I felt at Hockaday. Yeah. So I was very uh, interested in going to a smaller school right. where I would be known. I loved that Rice had a residential college system. It's set up like yep. Oxford or Cambridge where you are set up into this residential college that you live for all four years. And we do intramurals with your colleges. Each college mm. has their own government. And I was very involved in my college's government. I was the president of my college my senior year. Each college has like a $50,000 budget that 21-year-olds mm. get to decide what to That's do cool. with. Yeah, it's... it's. How'd you spend yours? <laughs> we, you know, <laughs> in a lot of really great ways. Yeah. We would obviously like throw, throw get-togethers for the college. Uh, we had a whole committee that just did charity and yeah. community service work. There was also times where we would rent a camel for $800 for the afternoon so people could go on camel rides. Nice in the quad, you know, stupid and substantial things. You could request money from the college uh, as a student. So if you had a passion project of some kind, you could kind of make a pitch to us for that. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was a really great experience. 
I really enjoyed, particularly when I was president, you know, every Monday, me and the other eight college presidents would meet with the dean of students at oh, Rice awesome. to discuss campus-wide issues. And, right. and that was definitely my first foray into school administration. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to you know, hear, hear from this, this really big wig person about why we couldn't do certain things or you know, the, the things that they would ask our opinions of. You know, I remember I was the president in 2008, 2009. So the financial mm-hmm. crisis has hit. Yeah, right. My graduating class is now freaking out about what we're gonna do for jobs because yeah. everybody is losing their jobs. And, and what we're discussing with the Dean of Students is how we can save money and they're talking about, should we get rid of the, the Houston Chronicle subscriptions for all the dining halls? And, and we're just thinking, this seems so silly. Why are, we, why are we having these discussions when a quarter of your student body now has no idea what kind of a world they're graduating into? Right. But I, I, I certainly feel now being in like ELT meetings, there are, those are the types of decisions that have to get made by somebody. Yeah. And they do kind of make the world go round in schools. So it was really interesting to get that perspective, that perspective of the, of the yeah. university, yeah. So I majored in mechanical engineering at Rice, which was very difficult and I did I not love it <laughs> most of the time. I was uh, about eight hours away from switching my major. Mm. My March of my junior year, I just, I broke down. There's this bar on campus, it's for grad students, mm-hmm. but you know, once you're 21, or if there's certain bartenders working, they'll they'll let you in. And there's this uh, <laughs> this bar is is run by people who volunteer, so mm. nobody gets paid there. Wow. So there's this guy who lived in Houston. His name was Tim. He was just like in his 60s, and Eesh. he would run the 12 to 2 a.m. shift on Wednesdays at this bar, Valhalla, on campus, and he <laughs> would bring in a crock pot of chili. Yeah. And so if you knew Tim and, and you were cool with him, you could show up at 12 and just get some chili and sit in this bar. So I'm sitting there with my chili, just crying into this bowl of chili oh about how God. much I hate my life <laughs> as, a, as a mechanical engineer junior year. And he was like, well, what are you doing with yourself? You know, yeah. I was like, you're right. I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm quitting tomorrow. I'm dropping this major. Yeah. I'm majoring in Latin. <laughs> we're, we're doing it. That would be a change. Uh, yeah, it was. I kept taking Latin classes all through college. It was wow. like my fun thing to do. Uh-huh. I would have like my four engineering classes, then I would take Latin wow. for fun. Yeah, it was always my fallback plan. It's uh-huh. like, if this engineering thing doesn't work out, I'll become a Latin teacher. It'll be fine. So I'd kind of made the decision. I was like, you're right. I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. We're, we're cutting, cutting it off. So I'm walking back to my dorm at 2 a.m. The residential college next to me, the, uh, the RA there was actually my thermodynamics professor. It's kind of like Whoa. a boarding school, yeah, yeah. where the, the RAs are people who work at the school. Wow. They're so not they're students. they're really employees. They're not students. That's yeah. right. That's, That's right. Cool. Um, yeah, it was very cool. So we, we were living with our professors. Yeah. He was out and about at 2 a.m. He was uh, a younger professor. And he said, oh, Abby, I, I got a call from, uh, from this guy at NASA. And I had applied for an internship there uh-huh. about a month prior, and I'd asked him to write a recommendation for me. And he said, yeah, you're going to get that job. Oh, wow. And I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah, they called me up. Like, you're going to get that job for the summer. And so I was like, all right, well, <laughs> let's, just, let's just see where this engineering thing goes. <laughs> we'll stick with it for a little while longer. So, yeah, I literally was about to quit oh, my major. Wow. Ended up with a summer internship after my junior year. That led to a job offer yeah. and worked at NASA for seven years after graduating college. So very, very serendipitous. What about, so give us a couple of highlights from your time at, at NASA. 
Certainly the biggest highlight would be that for my first two years, I worked on the space shuttle program. Yeah. And I worked specifically on the fuel cells, which are the power source for the space shuttle. So the last eight space shuttle missions from 2009 to 2011, I got to work in mission control. And there's a there's kind of three rooms to mission control. Everybody knows what's called the front room. It's what they show in all the movies. Yeah. <laughs> With all the, the, the tiered seating and the big mm -hmm. screens up there. And, uh, and there are these people who are trained to sit in there, and they're trained to respond to any alarm that happens. Is that where they say, Houston, we have a problem? Exactly, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, well, they said that in space, but that's who they would have been that's talking what I mean, to. That's who they're talking to. That's exactly in, in right. The front room. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, so the front room, they're kind of like robots. They, they memorize every single alarm that could happen, and they know exactly how to respond in the moment. And they have what's called the back room, which is for every one person you see in the front, there's usually two to three who mm. are supporting them in the back. So mm. they're kind of making decisions together. And they're all reporting to the flight director, who is kind of God in a, in a space mission. Yep. The only person in the government hierarchy who can overrule the president. Fun fact. Wow. They had to make that very clear in the 60s. They were very concerned that... In the space race for Russia, a president, yeah. for political reasons, might force a mission to go on. And NASA wanted to be very have clear that they that. could have veto power over that. That's right. That's really interesting. So where does the flight director sit? At the top of that room. Okay. The very back middle desk. So uh -huh. he can kind of look down and see everybody. So everybody in the front room can speak to the flight director. They can also speak to their back room. We have these like little ear mics that go in and yeah. you choose which channel you're on. And the flight director makes all of the decisions mm -hmm. for that eight-hour shift. So it all goes through So are through there three him. flight directors at a single, for so a single for mission? Any, for any mission, there's usually four. These usually four. kind of because they right. switch a shift or whatever. Because okay. the mission's usually, a space shuttle mission anyway, was usually between 10 and 15, 16 days. Yeah. But that's exactly right. So they would have kind of eight-hour shifts that they would go through. And the whole team would transition together. So okay. the flight director would kind of have his team for the mission. Same team for every session? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's good. Yeah, exactly. And so those are kind of the rooms that people maybe have seen in movies. What most people don't know is there's this third room down the hallway mm -hmm. called the mission evaluation room. And that's where all the engineers sit. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in the front room, like I said, you're responding to these alarms but you usually don't have the time to figure out why that happened. <laughs> why did an alarm go off or why did some failure happen? Because yeah, you're responding you're to it in the moment. It. That's right. And so you would kick the problem to the MER, the mission evaluation room. And so that's where I sat. So you know, we would be on the headset. We could talk to the guys in the front room about certain problems. But our main job was to get there every morning and look through what we called chits, these problems that got kicked our way. So what's going to be an actual problem? What might come up again later, what might affect another group. And we would have two or three hours in the morning to go through all that before we presented to this, this big room where everybody from every single subsystem is presenting to this one guy. And depending on what happened the day before, it could be a 15 minute meeting, it could be two or three hours. Mm. That one guy, the head of this, this room, the head of the MER would go later that afternoon and there would be this, this very tiny meeting with like six people. And it's like a representative from the astronaut office, a representative from the engineers, a representative from the, the mission office, the people in the front room. And there would sometimes be conflicts, right? What the astronaut office might want, because they want their crew to get eight hours of sleep every night, might be different from what the mission needs or what the engineering can support. Hey, mm -hmm. I know you want to be up there for four more days, but we only have enough juice to be up there for three more. And so they would make these really big decisions every single day. So it was kind of my job to distill these problems, explain it to this person so that they had the information to go forward. Wow. 
Yeah. And so that was a two-year stint for That's you. That's right, yeah. That's what I did for my first couple of years That's was supported really cool. that. So every day I would sit on, during a mission, I would sit on console. It would be me and this uh, representative from Boeing because they built the space shuttle. And yeah, we would just kind of go through all the data for the day. We'd log our notebooks. We'd go through any issues. I would present the NASA perspective of what might be an issue. The biggest, most scariest thing that happened, I was 23. It was probably like my fourth or fifth mission and we're prepping for launch. So yeah. space shuttle launch, I would get there about six hours before the launch because we have to turn the fuel cells on. Right. You know, we would we'd turn them on, we would ramp them up, we would test them, we'd make sure they're all kind of good to go for launch. I get there and we start going through our activation protocol. And at this point, Kennedy Space Center is kind of calling most of the shots. Mm. They're the ones who launched the space shuttle. So I'm in communication with them on my headset. We get this weird reading on our computer screen, this voltage pops up. And I'm like, hey, have you guys seen this? They're like, yeah, not quite sure what that is. It doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I say, yeah, I agree. Well, let's, let's keep going and let's see if it kind of evens itself out. So we continue the activation and then sure enough, this, this voltage is still really high. And what that means is there's kind of two potential issues. One is that there is a hole in this membrane in the fuel cell and hydrogen and oxygen are mixing in yeah, an uncontrolled that manner. Good. That's a bomb, right? <laughs> when you when you mix hydrogen and oxygen. Flammable. Yeah, very flammable. And when we start turning it up to a higher power load, it could explode. Yeah. Which is not what you want. Right. Or it means that there is literally like a piece of crud, like water, dirt, something that is shorting out between these two and it's picking up this voltage. Mm -hmm. So it could also mean that when I turn the power up, it's gonna melt that thing and everything's gonna be fine. One of those two options, like it's either gonna blow up or nothing is wrong. Wow. So here we are, we're like now like three hours before launch. That's not good. And the way that, yeah, space shuttle launches work is there's this massive timeline that starts 72 hours before launch. Everything has to happen at a specific moment. They're not gonna fill this, the massive external tank until the fuel cells are ready to go. If we're not gonna go anywhere, they're not gonna waste all this hydrogen and oxygen. And so we have about 45 minutes to decide can we launch tomorrow, right? Because we have to tell them, yes, yeah. fuel cells are good, we're ready to go. And so I'm literally, it's like a Sunday night at like 10 p.m., I'm calling this guy in Connecticut at the place where they build these fuel cells and they test them in between flights and I'm getting him out of his bed <laughs> and I'm like, walk me through this. I'm sending you screenshots of the data. What do you think is happening? You know, here's our thoughts. And he's like, I really think it's crud. I think, oh I think you're gosh. gonna be okay. Oh my and, gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, so we have to sign, cause we're gonna ramp this thing up, we're gonna test it. And oh. it's gonna blow up or it's gonna be fine. So I'm literally, they're giving me this sheet of paper that says, to the best of my engineering knowledge, this is not oh. gonna break the space shuttle. <laughs> and and I, oh. me at 23, I'm like, yeah, oh. I'm gonna sign the NASA line for this. Oh my God. The Boeing guy next to me is signing the line. The guys at KSC are having to do the same thing. So there's all this paperwork of like exactly who to blame <laughs> if this goes haywire. Because oh. if, this, if this thing blows up, it's taking out a good chunk of the space shuttle. This thing's out for months now. Like we're not, I mean, there's a lot on oh the line. Gosh. It was fine. We ramped it up, it was just watched it for a couple minutes. It was crud. It melted. It went away. Wow. And literally with like four or five minutes to go, like we're like, it worked, it worked. Go, go, go. And they're like rushing tankers out there to fill the things. Wow. Yeah, because the space shuttle has like a five minute launch window. So everything has to happen exactly within a minute or so of what it should 
so you can actually launch the next day. That was exciting. <laughs> so fast forwarding now to Woodbury. Woodbury yeah. must have seemed like a walk in the park compared <laughs> to it. I mean, I know. I know a lot of us who've worked at Woodbury said it can be stressful at Woodbury, but my goodness, it's, uh, this seems calm and copacetic. I, I do think there is some benefit to have having had a, a very weird job previous to here. Because um, I agree, there's tons of times where Woodbury is stressful, mostly because it's it's a lot of 24-7, but I'd kind of already done that at NASA yeah, too, right? Sure. I'd already like sat in Mission Control at 2 a.m. Right. by myself. So, so that wasn't even super weird to me. And yeah, I do think like there's never, thank, thankfully, uh, and knock on wood, but there's never been a time here where I've literally had to decide, am I gonna blow up a $250 million piece of equipment? I've started a fire in my lab that ruined like $100,000 of equipment at NASA. Like yeah. I've never had that, that issue yeah. here. So all of that has been really nice. And, and it is nice to have a little perspective that the work we do here is so important, but like, is it that important if right. a boy did his math homework? Maybe not, <laughs> yeah. you know? So I think that, that was certainly very helpful for, for switching careers to have maybe a very different perspective. Why was it that a place like Woodbury appealed to you given where you were in your life and in your career? Yeah, so after seven years at NASA, which I enjoyed very much, I really enjoyed my coworkers, I really enjoyed the, the mission. Yeah. And I think that's honestly what is most similar to NASA about Woodbury, mm -hmm. is the mission, right? Mm -hmm. I loved that I was working with people who, none of us were working for profit, we weren't trying to make money for, right. for NASA. It was this pure goal of exploring and learning and doing science and technology and, and pushing things a little bit further. And I couldn't say that about most of the people that I did engineering school with, mm -hmm. who, you know, especially doing it in Houston, most of them go work at oil and gas. And it's yeah. very much about profit. And a lot of them were getting burnt out within yeah. three, four, five years. Yeah. You know, they made a lot of money and, yeah. and left. And after seven years, I just, for me personally, the work of engineering was not really well suited to my personality type and what I find fulfilling. So there were days where I might not talk to a single person. Mm. I'm just sitting at a computer doing 3D models all day. And I found myself really drained by that. Mm. Um, I'm a very extroverted person. I gain a lot of energy from being around other people and talking with them. And I was able to find a niche at NASA where I worked a lot with our external relations office, specifically going to schools and talking with students about STEM and NASA and getting oh, involved in yeah. that. You know, I started to think to myself, gosh, you know, I do that for maybe five or 10% of my job. And I love that mm. so much more than what I'm doing 90% of the time. It got to the point where I, thinking about pros and cons of staying and leaving, and the biggest reason to stay at NASA was because I, it was safe. I knew what the next 30 years of my life would look yeah. like. I yeah. could see my career trajectory, right. and I said, I can't make a decision because it's safe. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, I always knew, whenever I'm done with engineering, I will be a teacher. So thinking about, okay, how do I uproot my whole life? I, I decided, let's blow it up. I've never lived outside of Texas. I've never, you know, I haven't been out of Houston in a long time. And I knew if I stayed in Houston, I had enough friends who were teachers. I knew I was, okay, I'm gonna make a lot less money. I'm gonna have to move out of my apartment. I'm gonna be working at nights now. I'm gonna have, you yeah. know, grading. And I didn't wanna judge the career shift by how it changed my life Your in lifestyle, Houston. lifestyle, right, in Houston. That's right. right. And so I said, I gotta go somewhere totally different. Uh -huh. I kind of have to try this out in a vacuum. Right. And 
Hockaday is, was part boarding, it's not anymore. And so I knew a little bit about boarding schools. I said, you know, that could be a really good option. I could go somewhere, it'll be instant community. I could go for two or three years, see if I like teaching. Right. I won't have to worry about making new friends in a new city right. and being isolated. And then I'll come back to Texas and then I'll teach at Hockaday and everything will be great. And so I, I went up to TABS and I interviewed with like 14 different boarding schools in one day. Woodbury being one of them. There were definitely a lot of things that appealed to me, the single sex nature of it. I think, like I said, the, the purity of the mission. I loved that it was all boarding. Mm -hmm. I love that all the teachers were here on campus. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about what I wanted and what I was trying to figure out, you know, is teaching gonna be a career for me for the next while? This was just such a lovely place to do that in. It had those things that I wanted, that instant community. It had the connection to my previous schooling experience right. with the single sex nature that I knew about. And y'all were willing to let me coach football, yeah. <laughs> which was wild. <laughs> so I was like, this, this sounds like a great place. We'll get to that in just a second. I've, I, you may have forgotten this, but I will never forget when you were interviewing at Woodbury and we had our conversation mm -hmm. and I asked you, is there anything that you're anxious about? Mm -hmm. And you said, well, I'd really like to know maybe like who I'm going to have like a beer or two with. <laughs> and like, I, I think she's going to be awesome. I think yeah. you're, she's going to be great at Woodbury. Yeah, I mean, so, when you're 29 yeah, you know that and you're leaving a city of 4 million people yeah, to come who, to the middle who, of nowhere. <laughs> what's my social life? Yeah, be? absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think maybe it might be an assumption on the part of some that you know because we're all boarding in a boys school mm -hmm. that you know a, a young person especially a young woman might not have mm -hmm. much community here but i think i hope you at least that you found some of that and yeah. i hope that young members of our faculty find that here as, mm -hmm. as well i think that's gotten better even yeah. since i've been here well we've been pretty intentional yeah. about trying that's to right. hire really good women to work yeah. on our faculty like like you so tell us a little bit about before we move into your, your new role, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about your stint as a teacher coach. What were you teaching? What were you coaching? How did all that go for you? Yeah. So for seven years, I taught, I taught engineering here, right. which was really, really fun. For four years, I taught Algebra two, And the last three years, I taught um, Eclipse, which is our required trimester course for freshmen. Uh -huh. um, it's an intro to problem solving course. And I still teach that, which is really great. I was also coaching JV football. Head coach. I was the head coach for six of those years. My first year I was on the varsity football staff mm -hmm. and moved over to JV. And I, truly, it's it's the most fun I have here. Why? I, I, oh, goodness. And what, what qualifications <laughs> did you have to be the head JV none. football coach? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. none. You're well, not. You're <laughs> exaggerating. People Don't, don't scare the audience. Uh, you willingness to learn. Willingness to learn. That was about all I needed. Um, yeah. Well, I, so I, I served on the varsity football staff for a year, and right. I was the tight ends coach, which right. meant, you know, I had three kids to look after. Granted, all three of them played D1 football, so like it was, it was yeah. a, it was a pretty high-powered group. It, there, it yeah. was all me. It was yeah. all me. But that enabled me to learn the offensive playbook. It enabled me to observe. Brian Stevenson was the offensive coordinator at the mm -hmm. time. Who was, I learned a ton from just watching him during games. How he would interact with the kids when they made mistakes. Mm -hmm. How he would correct things. The the types of I kept his frequency charts during the game, so it taught me a lot about. What are some of the things that he's looking for when thinking about what play to call next? Mm. And so I just, I learned a lot just from getting to be in yeah. the room that year. I, I certainly would not venture to say that I was in any way helpful, but it, it taught me a lot. 
And so then the next year, when they, they decided, I think that my first year, the Bengal and JV were still kind of all in one big group. Yeah, but they separated them out. And they decided to separate and make three distinct teams. And so they really needed somebody to go coach the JV team. And I was kind of the, the low man on the totem pole on the varsity staff who also knew the offense and could go do that on, yeah. on JV. And so I was kind of the offensive coordinator as well as head coach. And Matt Blunden was my assistant. Uh-huh. Inexplicably, we have this like NFL quarterback yeah, who's doing the defense, awesome. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I, here I am on the other side after a year of coaching, doing the offense. But we had a lot of fun. It was like forty-five kids and and me and Matt Blunden, and That's awesome. I, you know, I, I kept doing that for for six years. Um, might have might have reminded you in some ways about like you know a NASA mission. You know the the yeah. responsiveness during a game to respond to problems or see different tendencies and that's really interesting i do think there is that was the the thing that took me the longest to get used to and get good at as a coach was play calling right where you know you've called a play and you're immediately having to think about two or three options for the next play based on okay did we get two yards on that one did we get seven yards is it third down now is it first down and trying to figure out how do i prep myself with a big spreadsheet in front of me during a game, how do I lay it out where I kind of know where my options are right away? How am I communicating with the boys what the play is during the game? And I think certainly as an engineer, you know, a lot of people think about engineers as like quiet people who are sitting by themselves all the time, but communication is so important. important. It has to be so precise too. And learning how to say, I don't know, is the biggest thing you can do as an engineer. You know, you you never want to BS something (laughs) when you could blow up a fuel cell on a space shuttle. And so I think that was also really helpful with me with football was simply being comfortable saying, I have no idea how to do this and going to, to talk with other coaches and I would show Brian Stevenson some of our film. Hey, what would you say to the boys on this play? How should I coach them up better? I really loved it. It was it was such a different way to use my brain at the end of the the, the teaching day. Yeah. And and I loved JV. Like uh, they offered that I could come back up to varsity kind of after I did that year mm-hmm. of helping out. But I loved that you know that JV football is really kind of the last time that mostly just sophomores are on a team together. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they were playing for each other yeah. more than anything else. You yeah. know, half of them know they're never going to play football again. Right. They're not going to do varsity. Um, the other half are really trying to make it on varsity, but they're all in it combo. together. Yeah. yeah. The boys here do really great things when they're doing it for each other. Yeah. And it was just fun to kind of get to be a shepherd through that. I got a whole new group every single year. Yeah. So every single year was a very different vibe. <laughs> yeah, I had to start from scratch every year. But that was also kind of nice that there yeah. was an expectation that I could, as a coach, kind of wipe a slate clean, yeah. right? That I could learn lessons and I could come back the next year and apply things and start, um, over. start over. Yeah. So one more question about your teaching and then we'll move to your new role. We didn't have engineering That's right. before you came. So For t- one year. We did. You're, yeah. you're right with Eric Bourne, I guess. Yep, that's doing, right. Doing that's that. right. But you really kind of anchored it and mm-hmm. rooted it here. What, what have been your goals with the engineering program at Woodbury? That's a great question. I came in with my number one goal being that I wanted that class to teach boys what I didn't learn in engineering school. Mm. So having been an engineer for seven years, Having studied in college for four years, I felt wildly unprepared for mm-hmm. the actual role of an engineer wow. after four years of school. <laughs> and I, it was because you get to the actual job and you realize computers are doing 
all the calculations that I just learned how to do. Uh -huh. And the actual work of an engineer is design. It's in working with solving. other people. It's fixing a problem in the moment. Yeah. It's presenting, yeah. right? Having to convince other people that your design is the optimal one for some reason. It's writing budgets and mm. proposals and trying to get money for... To, to build your design. As a project manager there, I had never thought about how do I spend money and, and keep track of it and allocate resources, right? Human time and all these things. And, and it was a lot of trial by fire <laughs> for seven years at NASA, just you know, walking through all these things that I'd never done before. And so I loved the idea that engineering is, it's currently and still is a, a senior elective. It's mm -hmm. a year long class. And it doesn't track towards any AP. It doesn't mimic right. any sort of intro class you might take in college. And so the curriculum is very, very free. And I, I really wanted it to be a class for kids who potentially might go into engineering. So I wanted them to get, get a taste for the different fields of engineering and what one might do as a mechanical engineer versus a civil engineer. But I also wanted the class to be for kids who had zero interest in going into engineering, but might get a lot out of the idea of how do I solve a problem? How yeah. do I communicate my idea to somebody else in a group? Yeah. How do I present right. an idea well and stand up in front of a class? Right. So I treated them, all my students, like I was treated as an employee where every six months I'd have to go sit with my boss and talk about my development plan and my goals. And I brought my students in every six weeks and we would do the same thing. Oh, that's cool. And so kind of trying to give them this feel for you know, this is not a class about tests and quizzes. It's a class where you're actually being held accountable, where I'm, you're going to sit in front of me and I'm going to say, you know, you really worked really poorly with this kid on this last project. Let's get into that. Why did that happen? You know, you really dropped the ball over here or, hey, you have some real skills in presentation or in facilitating with a group. You know, let's talk more about what that might look like for you in the future. And so I, I really enjoyed that that part of the class. And again, wanted to have them get an exposure to engineering. You know, they're working with little Arduino boards and, and doing, you know, actual engineering, stuff like that. But for me, it was more important that they got a lot out of the, the process yeah. of engineering. What's well, always struck me is more than many classes, true hands-on learning. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, totally project-based. Yeah. The class just went from one project to the next. And I think for seniors, it's a it's a break in their schedule that they really enjoyed. Yeah. And that it, it just worked their brain in a very different way. One of the cool projects that you uh, designed was the creation of, of Halloween costumes for mm -hmm. faculty kids. Yes. I've always loved, yes. loved that. And watching our boys interact with faculty children and trying to execute their hopes. Yeah. To, the kids' hopes for what their costume might look like. Yeah, like, that project is all about customer world, relations. Yeah, Real-world uh, <laughs> opportunity there. Yeah, and that's what you don't think about when you're going to be an engineer. You never think you're going right. to have customers, quote-unquote. Right. And I explained to them in the first day of that project, do you think anybody just gets to build a bridge that they want to build, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, you have a customer. You have yeah, somebody that you're sure. designing for. And I think Gotta be responsive. four- and five-year-olds are the toughest customers are, you can have. Yeah. They have a very clear idea of what they want. And they don't know how to communicate yeah. it, which is very true of adult customers too, <laughs> right? <laughs> and yeah. so how do we, we talk about eliciting requirements that you yeah. physically have to draw them out of somebody, right? Yeah. They have the idea in their head, what questions do I ask to get those ideas out? All right, I got one more question. I'm sorry I have all these questions, Abby, but one more question about teaching and then quickly we'll move into your new role. Mm -hmm. we talk, we've talked a little bit about women on the Woodbury mm -hmm. faculty. When you think about 
that topic, mm-hmm. what is it that women offer mm. boys in an all boys boarding school mm-hmm. that say men don't? Mm-hmm. I feel like it was so interesting because I could have answered this in my first two months here, and Uh I would not have thought too much about it ahead of time, other than thinking female representation is important. But within my first two months here, one of those tight ends that I coached, he was a senior, and he really kind of latched on to me. You know, we would walk up the hill after practice, I would quiz him on his plays, he, you know, started letting me know how he was doing in class. He would, you know, send me an email when he got a math test back that was really mm, good. Cool. And and I talked to the the football coach at the time. I was like, yeah, this kid's like, you know, he's really uh, communicating with me a bit. And he said, you know, he's really close with his mom. And his mom got sick and he was away at boarding school. And I think it was hard for him to potentially be away from that and being her support. And, yeah. you know, these boys are... 14, 15, 16, 17, they, they don't always know how to verbalize what it is that they need. And some of them need female connection. They're missing their moms sure or their older are. sisters. And they don't know how to tell us that, that they want a little female energy around them. I lived on Walker my first year here, and there was a kid who would come over before every varsity football game to physically hot glue the soles of his cleats back to his shoes. He refused to buy new shoes. So I would help him hot glue his cleats back together, and we would just sit and talk at the end of the week. And this is something he certainly could have done on his own. But again, I think there are a lot of boys who, they get used to sitting down with their moms and talking about problems, and and there's something comforting for them about having a mom do a little craft for you, help you. I've helped many boys iron their shirts before formal, and... And you know there are these these little touchstone moments that I think they miss from home. And yeah. again, they would never know to ask for that. And so by having a, a faculty that is more well representative um, from the female side, the boys don't have to ask, right? It's just there for them, and and they can gravitate towards it when they need it. Just like you know, it's important for us to have faculty of color and to have young men and to have old men because you never quite know what mentorship is it yeah. that a boy is looking for. Yeah, if you want all the boys to be known, challenged, and loved, you have to have a wide-ranging faculty to make that happen. That's right. Period. That's right. That's yeah. right. Your new role. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and what you're excited about, what you're maybe a little bit anxious about. Sure. So this is a, a new role within Woodbury. It's a sort of a combination of the academic dean and the dean of faculty role. Yeah, so the, our listeners should know that basically what I've tried to do is replace Paul Huber and Matt Bozen <laughs> with one single Uber person named Abby Mills. But, well, it, it's going great, by the way, to our, our, our listening audience. <laughs> yeah, those are rather large <laughs> shoes to fill. Impossible to fill Impossible. those shoes, but you're doing it in your own way. So, okay, That's right, back to yeah. you. Tell us a little bit about it. And so, so throughout this role, I, I oversee the the curriculum. I oversee our academic registration and, and all that sort of process. I oversee the Smoot Center for Academic Development, the library, the department chairs who in turn oversee all of the faculty. So there's quite a, a lot of different moving yeah. parts. I have really enjoyed it personally. One of the things that I... I didn't really anticipate about this job, I should have, was how much more connected to the school I feel. I think especially teaching engineering and Eclipse, which Mm. were departmentless. I didn't even have a department chair. I didn't have colleagues. (laughs) I was just up on my own, doing my own thing on the third floor of Keenan, 
which you know was lovely in many respects. But I've loved that I now know a lot more about what the history department is doing, and I know more about the the English department's philosophy on grading and what an English graduate should look like here. Mm. I'm really enjoying having more conversations with my colleagues about what they're doing in the classroom. Mm. I'm talking to a lot more kids about their 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 academics and you know what are you what do you want to get out of school here what classes do you want to take yeah interacting with parents a lot more yeah. which you know is is something that I've I've definitely had to to lean into learn a little bit um, one of the weird things about boarding school that I would not have anticipated before coming here is just how little contact as a teacher yeah that's right you have with parents as an advisor I had a ton you know but as a teacher day to day you're not really getting to talk to your algebra 2 students parents but in this new role there's a lot more parent interaction and so it is interesting to hear their fears their concerns right. you know the the academic landscape for graduating high school seniors is very different than when I was a senior 20 yeah. years ago and so hearing about you know what it is that's on their minds and how we either want to respond to it, um, given our own philosophy and what we think is best for raising boys, it can sometimes be at odds with yep. what the parents want. Right. And that's a whole new world that I really never had to deal with as a teacher. Yeah. So I'm enjoying learning more about that. Um, so it's, it's just been really great, I think, for, for me to kind of get out of my little hole and just see more of the school. That's, that's neat. Give us one thing that you're excited about bringing to the, the, the role. I think I'm excited about bringing a, a, a problem-solving, systematic System. type nature. I mean, that's your you know, engineering it is, it's, it is. I'm always thinking about, you know, is there, is there a process we can put in place here yes. that will make things simpler yeah. <laughs> or, or allow people to know what's going on a little bit better? whether it's a communication process, thinking a lot about how do I communicate with the faculty and make sure they know what's going on. Is there a, a process that I can put in place for the department chairs right. to, to better communicate with their, their faculty members? And I think, you know, I feel really, really grateful to be at a school that thinks a lot about having the right people in the room. Looking at the, the, the leadership Last year was a lot of humanities folks. That's right. And, you know, one of the great things about having somebody with a science background is that we're just going to approach things differently, yeah. which is excellent. At, at NASA, we suffered from not having people who had studied any, any other type of way right. in the room. And we would get our diversity from pulling from different engineering schools, mm -hmm. right? A kid mm -hmm. trained at UT is going to be different than a kid trained at Rice. But we're still trained in so engineering, engineering yeah. you know, and so we're luck at a school, you have people trained in so many different yeah. fields, right. which is excellent. And I'm, I'm really excited about kind of bringing that aspect of, of what I'm doing. I, I hope it's been somewhat successful so far in, in some of the things. It's been a so far. It's lots of, lots of fun. Lots more to come, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but the systems thinking is, is exciting to me yeah. as well. And um, it's, it's been fun so far. Well, Abby, thanks for being on the show. We thought, I thought we might end with a couple of rapid-fire questions. Are you willing to play ball here? I'm ready. What's your favorite meal in the dining hall? Chicken curry with the naan bread, hands down. Favorite meal in the fir tree? Bacon, egg, and cheese bagel. Growing up as a young person, maybe all the way through Rice and maybe even at NASA, but who's been your, your favorite teacher, the mentor, the person who you've modeled yourself after as much as anyone else? 
certainly two in high school. My advisor, Mr. Patrizzi, he was my chemistry teacher, and he certainly emulates what I would like to be as a teacher as far as like how I want the boys to feel around me. He created this this vibe. lovely vibe for his advisory. We could go into his office at any hour of the day and just take a nap. And he had all these little, we bought these floor poofs and he would turn off the lights and he would kind of go into his classroom and tell his class to be quiet because one of his advisees <laughs> needed a nap. Patrizzi, Mr. Awesome. Patrizzi. And the other one was Mr. Gans. He was my biology teacher. And he was really instrumental to me. I was the senior class president of my high school yeah. and he was our form sponsor. So yeah. he was kind of the teacher that I interacted with the most. We, we stayed in touch after high school and again, thinking about how I really did not want to do engineering and get through it. And, and he was one of the ones I would literally come home over breaks and like cry to. Unload on him. Yeah, and it was so helpful to have this adult who, who knew me when I was one of the best and brightest in high school and now I'm this scrub in college, you know, and he, to have somebody say, it is hard you're fine, you're gonna do great. It was, it was so anchoring for me and, and I still, I still think about that a lot with, with the boys and being teachers, right? I don't remember really, I had both of them as teachers, I don't really remember the lessons in class. I do not, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I know very little chemistry and biology to this day, but I remember how they made me feel, yeah. how they made me feel supported yeah. and loved cared and cared for. Yeah. Like I said, that, that just really, it buoyed me all the way through college, and um, I'm crying thinking about it. Um, oh, that's awesome. Unbelievable. I love, love hearing those stories. Do you have a funny memory that you'd want to share about Woodbury? When you live on dorm for seven years, you get you a lot of... Stuff. You see some stuff. You hear some stuff. I will, I will, so, so to that, this is, this is podcast shareable, but to that idea, my first couple months here, I, I, I lived on Walker my first year, and it was the old Walker, and yeah. so my, my kitchen opened up right into B-dorm. Yeah. There's the big stairwell up to C-dorm still, and just kids everywhere at all times. Hardly I, any privacy. No privacy. Yeah. I loved it. I, it was like trial by You're fire. In, yeah. I was all in. I was thrown into it. And I remember a few months in, one of the kids asking me, so what's the biggest like thing you didn't expect, you know, coming from NASA yeah. to like work at this all boys school? And I thought for a second, I said, you know, I didn't realize how many times I would have to say the phrase, please put pants on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they laugh and they're like, yeah, yeah that's, that's the best. For, that's the number of fair. times boys try to check in in yeah. their boxes, go, go put yeah, pants on, please, go please. put pants on. When you, yeah, when you imagine like, yeah, having this like, Robin Williams teaching moment, right? And, and like, that's, that's what I'm going to go do. And what you end up doing a lot of time is the put reality, pants on. The reality was a lot less than. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, Abby, thanks so much. This has been awesome. A lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks, for, thanks to you for all you do for, for Woodbury. I appreciate it. Thank you. Go Tigers. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Woodbury Podcast. We hope you found our discussion insightful and engaging. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing, rating, or leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for more conversations in the future. And remember, the conversation doesn't have to end here. Connect with us on Woodbury Forest School social media, reach out with your questions or comments, and let's keep the dialogue going. Until next time, take care and go Tigers!